From Hyde Park United Methodist Church in Tampa, Florida, this is The Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm Monica Largesse, your host today. On this week's episode, Matt Hotho and Steve Crawford interview for our episode on First and Second Peter and Jude. Our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Grace Bird. She spent much of her time on the East Coast, but is now working in the Portland, Oregon area. She has a Master's in Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary and a PhD in New Testament and Early Christianity from Vanderbilt University. Much of her research and writing is on marriage, gender, and sexuality. She has written Abuse, Power, and Fearful Obedience and Permission Granted, Take the Bible into Your Own Hands, which like this project, is about experiencing the Bible in a new way, seeking a new understanding, so that we can apply the Bible for what it really is. You can find those books and a video series about what the Bible says and doesn't say about marriage on her website, jennifergracebird.com. There's a link in the show notes. In the podcast today, they cover 1st and 2nd Peter and Jude, especially talking about the idea of a household code as people were starting to recognize themselves and each other as following Jesus, they needed to sort out what that meant for their behavior, what it meant to live within their culture and within their relationships as Christians. These three books try to work some of that out. Dr. Bird also talks about how these books have been used to hurt people and different ways to understand the texts. Now on to the episode. A special welcome to Dr. Jennifer Bird. She has graciously agreed to discuss with us First and Second Peter and the letter of Jude. But before we begin, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Bird. She is presently teaching at the University of Portland in Oregon and Portland Community College. She has a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics and an education minor from Virginia Tech University. Master's in Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary, a Ph.D. in New Testament and Early Christianity from Vanderbilt. She is also an accomplished author. Her published books include Permission Granted, Take the Bible into Your Own Hands, and the second book, Abuse, Power, and Fearful Obedience, Reconsidering First Peter's Commands to Wives. And we'll be talking about a little bit more about that in just a few moments. Finally, she's given us a 12-part video series entitled Marriage in the Bible, A Discussion Among Friends. Welcome, Dr. Bird, and thank you very much for your participation. Thanks for having me this morning. I really appreciate it. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Um, let's begin with authorship. Who do we believe wrote First Peter, Second Peter, and Jude? We have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. <laughs> um, I'm sure um, since you since we're all the way at first and second Peter and Jude, you've heard this discussed already, that one of the things that happened in terms of inclusion of writings in the Newer Testament was whether or not they were early enough and connected to um, the apostles or the first generation of people after Jesus. So his disciples and others who were named in that early movement. So the fact that the letter, these letters are named for people in that generation shouldn't surprise us. It gives it more credence. It connects it to a tradition, right, that already exists. Um, 
So that's about as far as we can go in terms of knowing who actually wrote them. Um, and the and the association with, in particular, Peter is just a nice way to connect it to somebody pretty pretty essential. So in other words, more people will buy your book or read your letter if, if you have a very prominent author. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Were all three written by different authors? Um, well, I think it's fair to say that first and second Peter were written by different authors. We tend to think of the letter of Jude as coming first in terms, and then second Peter uses almost carte blanche Jude and then adds to it. Um, So probably two separate writers there. Gotcha. All right. Uh, We know from Paul's letters that uh, often the letters are written or directed to specific churches, such as at Corinth or in Thessalonica or in Ephesus, who was the intended audiences uh, for the writers in First and Second Peter and Jude? Well, the first, the letter of First Peter, actually, if we look at the beginning, just very quickly, I'm just going to turn, I'm turning to it just very, very quickly for you. Um, <clears throat> the letter opens, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in, and then he names five regions. These are regions, not cities, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And if you were to look at a map of Asia Minor at that point in time, this is most of the, you know, the continental part of Asia Minor there, um, minus the coast on the south. So I'm trying not to launch into too many details here, but we kind of, because of the order that they're named in, we think of this as a circular letter Mm -hmm. that whoever would have, you know, the guy in prison over in Rome um, gives the letter to somebody on his behalf who takes it by boat and docks probably in the in the Black Sea on the northern part of Asia Minor and just goes throughout those regions and starts and goes to communities that have churches and reads the letter to those communities in turn, which is why they're named that that way in that kind of circular direction. As for the letters of 2 Peter and Jude, we don't have any recipients named, as you noted that Paul does in all of the letters attributed to Paul. So we don't know who the specific intended audiences were for Jude and Second Peter, and that is why they are considered Catholic, with a little c, um, addressing, you know, they, they can be read by or appropriated by anyone who identifies with this tradition. All right. Let's uh, go ahead and pick a couple of verses in First Peter uh, okay. to expound upon, and oh, I'm yes. going to take a tough one. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and if I could read that quickly, likewise, You wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that if there are any who refuse to believe the word, they may be one for Christ without a word, because they have seen your pure and reverent behavior. Okay, Um, if you would expound upon that for us. First of all, we're being misled on a certain level, because the language here is actually women women in the same way, accept the authority of, of the men or your men, depending on mm. the context. And the reason I raise that is we today have a lot invested in language direct, directed to couples, directed to people in married situations. And I understand why. But the, the, the biblical texts themselves do not talk about men and women as married. They talk about men and women whether you're talking about the Hebrew Bible or the Newer Testament. There isn't a separate noun 
for wife as woman. There isn't a separate noun for husband from man. They talked about and thought about relationships that we call marriage differently in the first century than we do, right? And so, yes, um, it was, this was a time and a space in which marriages were economic or about survival, about you know, maintaining a household that would allow you to survive and that you know where your inheritance is going because it's all about the man in general, right? In, in terms of the way things are talked about, the focus is on men. So there are all kinds of things going on in this particular section, very short. But one is that the fact that women are actually being focused on in this passage, <clears throat> just as slaves were focused on in the, the immediate past prior to this, the few verses prior to it in chapter 2, 18 to 25. What's, I don't know how much of this you've talked about when, in, when you discussed the Pauline letters, for instance. Um, but the what we what this is a section of is what we refer to as household codes. And the reason I raise this point about household codes, which might seem like it's I'm getting off on a tangent instead of addressing the question about this content, but I promise I will address the content. So the man had three primary roles in the household. He was the husband to the wife or the man to the woman. He was the master to the slaves and he was the father to the children. Simultaneously, these same philosophers will note that they know that the woman is actually the one running the household. They know that the woman is actually the one rearing the children. Um, so they, so you know that a woman is ready to be married off if she's ready to do those things. But in their framework, a very patriarchal framework, you it was still the man who was in charge, even though the woman got all the things done. <laughs> um, so we have a philosophical, economic, political framework of the man in charge that we're now talking about here in these writings to communities, but we're focusing on the underlings. We're focusing on the women. We're focusing on the slaves. What does that tell you? It tells me and lots of other scholars that there's something afoot. Something is happening. These are powerful people. They, they are important. They are essential. Their work is essential. Their lot, you know, they maintain the household, which maintains stability of cities, which means right. So, so it's a really interesting, almost eruption, if you will, that we see them importing the household code, but focusing on not the man. They do they do refer to the man to be good, to be kind to their slaves, and to be kind to your children. But they're not the main point here. So. Very interesting to me. It comes from an intention, a good intention, right, of wanting these communities to not be misunderstood, to not be persecuted. And the, one of the ways you can do that is to make sure you are behaving in ways that people outside will perceive you as being good citizens. So if I could make sure I understand these, this point, and, and, and it's a good one, that to our 21st century ears, when we read this language, it creates some dissonance. Um, but if we look back to the first century and we see the text, it actually is a progressive statement made by Peter uh, in a sense that it is dealing with and talking to uh, a segment of society that was not generally recognized. 
I would agree with that assessment. It isn't actually a thing I've st- said myself in terms of what you, what you've just said. I, in terms of like, I don't think about it that way. But yeah, actually, yes, you could see this as an empowering element of it. Yes, to well, acknowledge groups that have not been acknowledged. So um, I guess we would call that we need to read the Bible in historical context. Uh, we need to yes. honor and 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 to consider uh, what this language would have meant back then, not necessarily yes. what it might appear on its face to mean now in absolutely. order to fully understand it. Okay. I'm absolutely with you on that. What we're seeing also indicates to us, so in looking at verses one and two, um, accept the authority of your husbands, so or accept the authority of the men, um, is a way of saying, um, or when we kind of look at it all together, this passage all together, one of the things that we're assuming is happening is that there are women who are a part of this movement. They're a part of this segment of Judaism that's soon to be Christianity, but their husbands are not. The men that they belong mm-hmm. to are not. And this is disruptive, right? I mean, we talk about it today. If if the two people in a marriage have different religious convictions, that it can be tricky or that you have to navigate that carefully, right? To respect the beliefs. And in a much more patriarchal setting, right, where the man is the head of the household, for the woman to be doing other things, religiously speaking, it seems, it appears to be subversive, to be, she's not respecting his authority. The language that's used in verses three to six um, is is concerning to me as a biblical scholar because it's a language that is that mimics abusive relationships and control of the woman in an abusive relationship. What are you wearing? What are you? Yes, yes, exactly. Controlling the outward appearance, keeping her from from talking to others. So Peter takes a a very difficult personal issue. Yes. And gives his advice yes. as to how best to deal with it. Yes. And I believe it was the best of intentions. But we know from observing human relationships that in an intense abusive situation, you don't ever win the other person over with your actions. Uh, but in the interest of moving along, let me yes, jump to uh, Second Peter. Um, which appears to be, uh, again, theologians have said, a rebuttal argument to those who seem to take Christian freedom too far. Uh, you agree with that assessment? Is that what Second Peter is all about? I, you know, for the most part, yes, I do. I do. As I as I mentioned earlier, I do think that Second Peter has taken the letter of Jude and added to it, and that's I'm okay with that. That that happens in other places in the Newer Testament. Same with Colossians and Ephesians. Colossians came first and is adapted by the author of Ephesians. Um, and same with the Gospels, right? Mark was first, and Matthew and Luke came along and said, "Hey, we're going to take those." Thank you very much. Um, so, but when I read through the letter itself, um, I'm really struck. I was, I'm just really unsettled by what I read in this letter. It is very, um, it's making very clear, in my opinion, that there are, there are certain behaviors you just don't do if you're a part of this community. But to an extent, to an extreme of judging people's behaviors, they mean well, they want, you know, they mean well, we want to support positive, good things. I get that. But the language that's very dualistic um, and even judgmental 
to me is 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 challenging and upsetting. So with that, we're going to jump to Jude. Um, Jude has been described as the trumpet call to defend the faith or a fiery cross to rouse the churches. Um, is that the context, the historical context in which you read Jude? Is that what Jude's all about? Yeah, he's trying to re- rein some things in. He's trying to make some points. Don't be like that guy, Balaam, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, don't, these are, God, these are, this tells us that these were important traditions that, that stuck with people, right? And, and as a positive or negative, either way. And so, you know, I, I mean, I think that's a fair way of, of assessing what the writer was trying to do and with all of the best of intentions, right? All right. Let me conclude by asking, um, is or would you agree with me that Hey Jude is probably one of the best songs written by Paul and given to John and his son? Do we think Hey Jude is authentically Pauline? <laughs> It is. Don't be afraid. <laughs> Thank you. There we go. Thank you, Jennifer, for being on the Thank podcast. You. Thank you so much for being a part of the project. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Bird, for joining us today. Thank you for talking about some of the more difficult topics within the New Testament. We're still worshiping online Sundays at 930 and 11 a.m. You can join us on Facebook or at hydeparkumc.org slash live. Keep up to date with all of our online gatherings at hydeparkumc.org. Thank you, Matt Hotho and Steve Crawford for interviewing this week. Steve Crawford was the producer. I was your editor. I'm Monica Largesse. See you next week.